guys, welcome to Away Game, Golf.com's new travel-focused podcast where we dive deep into all things travel. Today, I'm really excited to introduce to you Rand Morissette, Golf.com's and Golf Magazine's new architecture editor. We looked for this person extensively, and we finally landed on Rand, and we feel very lucky to be able to call him a colleague. You'll see him impact not only the way Golf Magazine and Golf.com ranks golf courses, but also the way we write about them and assess them. So Rand grew up in a golf-loving family. It consisted of a natural foursome, actually, two younger brothers and his father. His interest in golf course architecture started about 40 years ago when he went on family trips with those two brothers and his father. And those places included Harbortown, Piners Number 2, Scotland, so some of the greats. Rand went on to move to Australia and Asia from about 1993 to 2000. And when he was in Australia, he started Golf Club Atlas, which if you're into golf course architecture at all, you know it. It's the largest website devoted to the single topic of golf course architecture. More recently, he was involved with updating two books that he says were the most influential in igniting his passion for golf course architecture. Those books are The World Atlas of Golf, which was originally published in 1976, and Tom Doak's The Confidential Guide, which was published originally in 1993. So anyhow, Rand comes to us to ensure that Golf Magazine and Golf.com publishes the highest quality course rankings in the industry. And we couldn't be more thrilled to pick his brain today about all things golf course design and architecture. So Rand, first of all, welcome to the Golf.com Golf Magazine team. We're delighted to have you. Delighted to be on board. And, you know, I was just doing the math in my head. You have been thinking critically about golf course architecture for about 40 years. I know you're only 40 years old, but (laughs) Uh, for about 40 years, which is not an insignificant amount of time. What started this passion for for architecture? Well, you're right. I'm a little grumpy that you've dated me, but I'm 56 (laughs) um, years old and to be honest, what started it was my mom, who's a non-golfer, she gave to my father for Christmas in either 1976 or 1977 a book entitled The World Atlas of Golf. And some of the greatest writers of all time contributed to it, to it Herbert Warren Wynn, Peter Thompson, etc. And there were just, you know, some stunning uh, diagrams. They broke apart holes, you know, hole by hole analysis they talked about the history of the game and the uh, uh, three Morissette um, brothers just became enthralled um, with the subject matter derived from that book and as our interest grew um, dad was always a, a golfer by 1981 we went on our first real family golf trip and it was split evenly between, we lived, grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and it was split between Pinehurst, North Carolina, about a four-hour drive to the south, and then we went on down to Harbortown. Pinehurst, you know, has a mythical reputation, and it lived up to it despite the fact there's literally only one water hazard, and it's, you know, 100 and some yards off the tee on 16, versus going to Harbortown, which had a lot more things going on. There were railroad ties at some of the greens, a lot of water hazards, dramatic use of the wetland um, coming down 17 and 18, you know, a massive bunker at 16, just all kinds of super neat features. And on the ride home, 
1981, you know, remembering all the things we'd learned in the World Atlas of Golf, we were just squabbling in the back about, well, is Harbortown better than number two? Is number two better than Harbortown? And at that point, we came up with a way to review courses, which was to compare the first hole at Pinehurst to the first hole at Harbortown and do a match play. Oh, second cool. hole to second hole, third hole to third hole, fourth hole to fourth hole. And we didn't know it at the time. And I was 18, um, so I certainly couldn't articulate it. But we were fortunate to go down that path because what it did was it took the emphasis away from how we'd played that day or if we had a, a fast round or a slow round or particulars you know, unique to that one day and it really made us focus on the individual golf holes and that has proved to be a great help going forward and then two years later again stirred on uh, from the world atlas of golf we were in the fortunate position to go on our first trip overseas where we played turnberry royal dornock st andrews and muirfield and this was in august of 19 83 and we were torn as to which was the best course between the four my father ultimately joined uh, royal dornock for a period of time i think i liked st andrews i've always been into the history my other brothers um, just thought turnberry was knock your socks off gorgeous and we felt that uh, muirfield was on the least distinguished land and therefore in our eyes it was the least distinguished of the four courses. So we get home having jibber-jabbered about it for at length, and there on the floor in the foyer was Golf Magazine's World Top 50 inaugural list, and on the cover, I believe it was on the cover, it was Muirfield, and Muirfield was voted number one. Right. And that just <laughs> sent us into a tizzy we were just what have we missed how could we be so wrong what's going on you know between those two trips we've never stopped analyzing and trying to dissect what makes for fun and engaging golf what makes for great golf there you have it so that's amazing that you mentioned golf magazine's ranking of top 50 courses in the world at the time and one of your kind of big projects with us will be not only overseeing our panel of course raters, but also those rankings of top 100 courses in the world and top 100 courses in the U.S. And what is it about rankings? What is a ranking's purpose in your eyes? Is it supposed to be the definitive guide and says, you know, this is the number one course, bar none. This is the number 10 course, bar none. Or is it a launching pad to provoke thought and discussion and is it not supposed to be the end-all be-all? You know that's a great question. I have friends on either side of that fence and I personally have always enjoyed golf course rankings, talking about rankings, drilling down on why course A is better than course B. But the real purpose is that to me it facilitates and makes you articulate the attributes that are important to you. And that's what it is. It's meant to be a launch pad for making you understand what makes you the happiest, what courses resonate the most with you, where do you find the most joy 
and happiness. And, and course rankings are just a natural way to commence that conversation. And which I, so I find them to be enormously healthy and beneficial to the sport for that reason. I, I know growing up at the Country Club of Virginia, you know, in the 80s, you know, it was hard to engage people in the discussion of golf course architecture. There, the books weren't out, save for the World Atlas of Golf, and and it was hard to get people, you know, interested in the topic. And nothing gets people talking faster and louder than golf course rankings. Oh, for sure. They really do trigger emotion, <laughs> if nothing else. It's amazing every Which single is, time. You know, personally, I find that healthy. Now, yes. it's also, it means the undertaking starting now with Golf Magazine comes with an immense responsibility because to the extent, I think in the past, there have been various magazines that have talked about toughness and challenge. You know, at the end of the day, you know, there are more people in the United States today than there were at the start of this century, 19 years ago, but less people play golf. And so somewhere along the line, the message about what golf should be and the benefits of golf have become scrambled. And I think that if we can move the spotlight over to why golf is so fun, why it's so enjoyable, and shift the conversation, that will have a meaningful impact on the direction that architecture heads in the next 20, 30, 40 years. And, you know, that's that's an immense undertaking and one we're not going to do lightly. And, you know, that leads me to a question that I am excited to ask you. And so I'll just jump right in and ask it to you. But have there been clear eras in golf course architecture and design over the last, you know, 100 or so years? Have there been eras where tough, challenging courses were the primary focus and then eras when minimalism took precedence or real estate took precedence? And if so, what were they? And and are they clear or are they not so clear? I agree with your premise. I I think that they are clear. And, and, you know, if you really, if you wind the clock back 220 years, a lot of it hinges on um, technology. When you were playing with the feathery golf ball in the 1820s, you know, the first hole at St. Andrews, you would have would have been a par five. I remember reading that in the World uh, Atlas of Golf. And then the gutter percher came along in the 1850s. A more reliable golf ball went further. You started seeing better designs like Prestwick and the old course at St. Andrews. And then when the rubber core Haskell came out in around 1902, you know, big step forward in architecture and entered into what was referred to, still is referred to, as the golden age of architecture. And that ended in uh, 1939. I live in North Carolina, and to me it ended with the Perry Maxwell Building Old Town Club in Winston-Salem. And then, obviously, World War II, some other unrest. We got in, in the 1960s, into building very solid, functional golf courses, Hogan's comment at uh, Oakland Hills about bringing the monster to its knees, all of a sudden difficulty and challenge um, became these prized uh, virtues. So it really wasn't 
surprised, you know, if you came up to a, a green and you're 200 yards out and your bunk is bunkered left and right, you know, you had to execute a set prescribed shot in order to be successful. And, you know, to me, you can sit on a range with your buddy and figure out which of you is the better ball striker. Golf needs to be something far more engaging than that. Otherwise, again, just stay stay at the range. And, and that period in the uh, 60s, 70s, ultimately, when the economy turned, golf very much was tied to real estate all the way up I would say about to 1997, and you know another huge event occurred um, that year, which was, uh, and again I think it might have been on the cover, but in 1997, course debuted in Golf Magazine's World Top 100 that most people had never heard of, and it was called Sand Hills Golf Club in Nebraska. And the pictures were absolutely stunning. And this was clearly entire different brand of golf than the rigorous, difficult testing golf that had been uh, trumpeted for so long as the ultimate. This was something far more, at least to me, inspiring. So you consider that a turning point, a significant turning point? Absolutely, yeah. stake in the ground, turning point. Shortly thereafter, Pacific Dunes followed, and then just this slew of, and I do like the term, uh, minimalist courses uh, would follow. And of course, you know, Mike Kaiser started building them from Nova Scotia to Tasmania to everywhere, and the whole sport was elevated. And what truly was, you know, dream golf was redefined and reimagined according to you ran morissette makes a great golf course great how long do we have <laughs> but you know <laughs> there, there there's a nice man in england lawrence smith and he writes a monthly uh, newsletter and he, his his simple answer is the joy to be alive factor and if a golf course makes you happy to be alive then in his eyes that constitutes a great golf course and I I really like the simplicity of that answer now in terms of the things that make me happy and that would fit that criteria I use golf as a primary form of exercise and as a primary form to reconnect with nature so clearly I'm after playing in a housing free zone you know prettier um, the better and then, you know, I, I wrote some things that, that were important to me. You know, one is that it has to provide engaging puzzles to solve. So you're, you know, you're fully, you know, as you play Pioneer's number two, you are fully engaged. Whatever your issues are at home or at work or with your children, that, you know, hopefully they melt away and you are really zoned in on how to tackle the challenges that those greens present. Golf is a form of escapism, you know, to make you happy and to relax. I mean, you just can't overstate the the value in something like that. And you think a main um, driver of pulling a golfer in is the design of the course. Like if the if the course is boring or repetitive or doesn't offer a lot of shot values or doesn't let your imagination run wild, 
then that leads to not pulling in the golfer as as well as as a course should is that is that the the primary driver of that that's exactly right i mean if you're not if the course doesn't engage you and ask you to like the sixth hole at royal um, melbourne dog leg to the right if you can carry this diagonal bunker and stay on the inside of the dog leg you have a clear shot into this elevated green course it's a real risk reward whether you want to flirt with this massive bunker right. on the inside of the dog leg most people head to the far outside of the dog leg which then means they have their approach shot has to carry one of the deepest greenside bunkers on the course and so you know as you tack your way around the course you're asked those sorts of questions time and time again my favorite courses in the world don't feature water because the purpose in trying to take all, accept a risk, can't, it can't be so disproportionate that you're, you know, brutally um, punished from ever attempting it. The architect needs to woo you in to essentially make a wrong decision. And only later do you realize that on that day he tricked you. And that makes you want to go back. The idea, there are plenty of people who love golf way more than I do, and they would go out and play a five-hour round on bowling alley straight fairways with bunkers way off to the left, way off to the right, and flat putting surfaces, and it doesn't matter really where you hit the ball, and you're not really asked any questions. There's minimal strategy. That honestly just isn't my cup of tea it's not interesting to me so you know i would elect not to play in situations like that or you'd need a cold beer (laughs) many of them maybe that's that's why people drink on the course (laughs) that's exactly right um and so are there elements of design that almost always ruin a golf course in your opinion you know i I think it was mckenzie who said um, cramped features produce a cramped uh, mind okay and that's certainly um, true. It can be narrowness occasionally applied very much has a place in the game, but 18 narrow holes where you really have no options, where you're being asked no questions, where you're not trying to hit to the left side of the fairway or the right side of the fairway. I think narrowness is the one killer in golf. And of course, if you have homes left and right, that can promote um, narrowness over time. You allow trees to grow in and things just start working against you. So one of the great things in the, this century had been the return to the fairways that are 40, 45, 50 yards wide, which were the norm in the golden age of architecture. You can now argue that we're going too wide in some places But I would just say that that's far better than being too narrow. I think everyone who's listening who is of the male gender and who swings more than 110 miles an hour, they're just all nodding their heads. Because (laughs) once you do that and miss the the sweet spot by just a little bit, who knows where that drive is going. So, yeah, I think wide fairways are a super exciting trend. Have you played Mammoth Dunes at Sand Valley? I was just uh, there three three weeks ago and you know it it really fits Kaiser's bill perfectly I I think you would have so many people coming off that golf course with a huge 
grin on oh, their yeah. face from having shot, you know, near a, you know, below their handicap. You know, the hazards are very handsome, so you really feel like you've accomplished something. But, you know, one of the things I hate is um, hunting for golf balls in tall. Absolutely. Rough. And, you know, you really don't have that at mammoth so i just remember the smile on my husband's face he is one of those that just gets after it off the tee and if he connects with the sweet spot that drive see you later it's straight down the middle but if he doesn't he's hunting (laughs) and so when he walked off that golf course he could not have smiled a bigger smile you know he was he found it so fun and and i think fun is definitely a characteristic that is more at the forefront of today's architects, whether they're building something new or restoring something, than it had been maybe 15 years ago. Couldn't agree more. You know, fun is um, back on the menu, I think, front and center. I think with that comes uh, variety. You know, back, I remember there was a great article trumpeting the benefits. I think this was in the 80s. Cypress, Seminole, and Marion, and just how important the short par four was um, to golf. And, you know, it's, it's great to see, you know, that being reintroduced. So, I mean, it's a very good time to be a golfer right now. Absolutely. Um, much more so than if you were, you know, starting, you know, suppose you were in your 40s in the 1950s or 60s. Hindsight's shown you didn't have that much to look forward to. You know, again, it was really meant to be an examination on how well you could strike the ball. And for a lot of people, that's still, you know, very important, you know, which is great. I just think that there's a, it's tough if if all the courses were being built for the 1% that could hit, you know, long straight drives and hit high soft two irons. Oh, that sounds Now nice. I think the sport's much more inclusive. So what are three little-known golf destinations that you love? Well, you know, one of the most interesting was Old Mention Hampton, which is about two hours dead west of Heathrow Airport. It's a common ground course, which means cattle have the right-of-way, and that you're not allowed to really, you're not allowed to build hazards. So there are no um, bunkers. Um, but the land has all these great rumples and craters in it naturally. You know, it, it, it's just this open, huge sky, open, um, expansive feel. And, for instance, when my wife was with me, she started doing cartwheels down one of the fairways. And she's not a golfer, but she was just so struck by the handsomeness of the um, course and the relaxed atmosphere that she was truly just caught up in the moment. And that, you know, that's that's neat to see. I mean, certainly to me, one of the, the, the definitions of a great golf course is that you would want to be on property there without your clubs in hand. You know, it's an environment where you just want to spend time. And the educational thing about Old Mention Hampton, well, it, it goes to show you that a lot of the shaping that was done in golf course construction in the 1980s, 1990s, you know, that these courses became too stylized and that man's hand was too heavy on the land and that you had no real sense of where you were. You had no real sense of place. And so a stripped-down course like Old Mention Hampton I found to be extremely rewarding on a number of different levels. 
another um, great course to me is Culver Academies in Indiana. It's a nine-hole course built by some of the hottest architects in golf right now, and they've been dead for about 70 uh, years, William Langford <laughs> and Theodore Moreau. If you read anything about Lawsonia, um, West yep. Bend, Culver Academy, the, these architects have really, their star has risen dramatically in the last um, 10 years. And the neat thing about Culver is they, they were going to build 18 holes, but they only built the best nine holes, and they were going to wait for a better economic time to finish it but all they ever did was build these nine great holes and so you know you know you certainly don't have to play um, 18 holes to have a grand time and Culver represents that in a way that made them ahead of their time because of this phenomenon recently of nine hole courses and I guess mostly par three courses but really taking a close hard look at why is it so vital that we build an 18 hole par 72 golf course maybe it's not actually that's such a great point and I am reading an absolutely captivating book by Peter Lewis who's uh, I think he's the historian for the RNA entitled why are there 18 holes right and he says that an 18 hole course he uses the word as a predetermined course you know you're going to go to a property and you're going to find 18 holes and he refers to you know he goes back in time and he starts talking about Musselboro um, starting off as a or Leaf Link starting off as five holes and there was Musselboro which I think started five holes and it became six holes and became seven holes and became eight holes nine holes and it wasn't until 1923, I believe, that there were more 18-hole courses in the U.K. than there were other forms. Oh, really? You know, there's still, yeah, there's still 12-hole Shishkin. I love the idea of going back to, you know, he makes the point that when they were trying to lay out golf courses, they just tried to find the driest land, the firmest land, and then the coolest hazards. And if that land would support five holes, great. If it right. would support 12 holes, great. And, you know, I love that approach. The U.K., you can still find odd number of holes here and there. I wish, you know, one of the problems and the, the reason there's a resistance to it here is people get wrapped up about their handicap yeah. and needing to put in scores into the gen system and all this. And that's a limiting factor, I think, much to the loss of the game. And, and I still get questions. The first question I get when I mention, you know, the 13-hole par-3 course at Bandon or the 17-hole par-3 course at Sand Valley or now, you know, the 10-hole par-3 course at Cabot is why why not 9 or 18? Like 17 holes? Like that's strange. Instead of saying, oh, tell me about them. You know, that's generally the first reaction. So I think it's going to take a bit for the everyday golfer to really understand why it's not so vital to or not understand it but not be so perplexed by it like why it's not so vital to have an 18 hole or nine hole track you know i think you're i mean ultimately it would take a man like mike kaiser to just do something um different people go oh my gosh this is so much more fun i'm glad they didn't try and cram in an extra six holes i just love these 12 holes you can count on me coming back because i had such a great um, time i think it'd be a you know, especially, you know, what this country needs 
is more golf closer to your home. Yeah. So, you know, you know, we all get to go if things are going well on a, you know, one big golf trip a year and that's wonderful. But really for golf to be embedded in your life, you need to have a really neat cool place somewhere within, you know, a 15, 20, 30 minute drive of your home. And I for one, you know, if it was an 11 hole course or an 8 hole course, I would be quick to embrace it. Especially you know, that's Chris what the Bowie land gives I, you. Exactly. I mean, don't don't go stamp 18 holes on it. Right. Be willing to accept what's there. So what's that third little known golf spot that you love? Well, you know, I always think you have to, to answer a question like that, you do have to um, vote with your feet. And the course that I may have played as much as any course in the world is Newcastle Golf Club in Stockton, about two hour drive north of Sydney, Australia. It, it's a very, you know, it's a plain Jane clubhouse in an asphalt um, parking lot. And, and you, you have no idea the fun you're about to have, but it's set through these um, sand dunes and they're about, they're about a thousand plus yards removed um, from the Pacific Ocean. You never see the Pacific at all, um, but it, it's great roly-poly uh, land. And the bunkers have this really neat feature, which is the floor of the bunker, greenside bunkers actually slope slightly toward the putting surface. Oh. And that, so the bunkers, and they're not gorgeous like at Kingston Heath or Royal Melbourne at all. And plenty of people um, go up and aren't um, dazzled by the aesthetics. But the bunkers play as true hazards because it's so, as you well know, from a downhill lie, it's very hard to get nice loft and a clean contact and have a ball pop out. And it, especially if you've short-sighted yourself, you have, you know, it's, it's, you have very little chance of recovery. And I love the fact that a hazard once again plays as a hazard. I wish more modern architects would consider doing something like that as a way to fight off the advances in technology. Initially, I'm like, no, I want it to be as easy as possible. <laughs> exactly. No, exactly. So where are you off to next? What's next on your calendar? My uh, big trip of the year is at the end of the month and head to Bally Bunyan in La Hinch, which will be a real treat. I haven't been there in either course in over 20-plus um, years, so you can imagine super keen to do that. Great. And then um, fly to Glasgow and go play Macrahanish and Macrahanish dunes, and then over to the Isle of Jura, um, wrap up the trip at a new course called Ardfin, and then uh, fly home. So very cool. Know, great, very cool. Great stuff. You definitely find ways to make it happen and, and get out there. So uh, we'll be living vicariously through your travels. <laughs> well, you know, it, it is neat. One nice thing about Macrahanish Dunes, when it first opened, um, it was poo-pooed um, as just being too hard. You lost too many golf balls. And then over time, they've gotten control and they've beaten back some of the seagrasses and stuff. And, and what I love, Ashley, with all the social media stuff is that as they've done good work and as they've made the course much more fun, people have kept an open mind and are now praising the place, you know, which is, which is nice to see how, you know, oftentimes social media can go against you. 
But that's an example where very much have seen a title change in opinion. So I'm, I'm quite keen to give it a go. Perfect. We'll be watching closely. And thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. And I know we're all thrilled to be able to call you a colleague and we'll be having you on more often. It's a great honor. I mean, the, the golf magazine World Top 100, it, as I've noted a couple of stories, it played a huge role in our appreciation of architecture. And we will not be taking responsibilities lightly, I assure you. Beautiful. Thanks, Rand. Take care.